Our scripture reading from today comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died, so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. We tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from the graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. My grandfather passed away this week. Um, he died peacefully in his sleep at 93 years old. Um, but he was a treasure to me. He was a complicated and thoughtful man uh, who loved me deeply and made me feel deeply loved. Uh, so the last uh, few days and hours as uh, the Mizell family, um, for us, our house has been filled with lots of conversations uh, about death and the afterlife and all kinds of things like that. So it is both very fitting and a little bit hilarious to me that this week we find ourselves in 1 Thessalonians 4 uh, talking about the end times and the afterlife. Um, I'm going to run our time together today uh, a little more like a class than I normally do. I, I did kind of a run through with Huck when I was trying to explain some um, end times and afterlife theology to him and his questions around my grandfather, and he did not give this raving review, so this is what you have to look forward to. Um, so I'm going to throw quite a bit of information uh, your way. I wish we were in a classroom. We could do question and answer and all kinds of things like that. Maybe one day when the world is a little more normal again and we're doing more in person, uh, we can do that. Uh, but today I want to do a class essentially on the rapture, which may seem weird, but I truly believe uh, that what we believe about the end of the world impacts how we show up. Uh, so, with that in mind, uh, if you grew up in the church, particularly in the church in the Bible Belt, I'm guessing that you know what I'm talking about when I say the rapture. There are books written about it. Um, we listened to one of them on book on tape for in Sunday school, my senior year of high school. It was a nightmare. Uh, the book on tape. The book wasn't great either, but listening to a boombox. Anyway, um, there, there are books about, there are plays written about it. They often show up around Halloween. Uh, my husband Daniel was in one. Um, there are movies featuring Kirk Cameron and Nick Cage. Uh, lots of things about the rapture in popular culture. You, you may have seen a famous bumper sticker, uh, um, and you, you may have even had one, like my roommate in college that said, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. Um, or maybe you were like my other roommate in college who tore those bumper stickers off of cars. I don't know. Um, if the rapture is a newer concept for you or a brand new concept for you, um, I do want to just do kind of a qu quick flyover of what we're talking about. Um, so to start, one of the beliefs that all Christian creedal practice uh, agrees on is the belief of all Christians in a second coming 
of Jesus. Uh, side note, if you are wondering what the things that all Christians agree on or that uh, almost everyone agrees on, um, the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, N-I-C-E-N-E, -E, um, are great places to find those out. You can Google them, uh, Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed. Um, so, while the idea of the second coming of Jesus is agreed on, agreed on um, the ways and winds of the second coming are not at, at all agreed on. Um, there are loads of beliefs out there about how and when um, the end of the world as we know it happens, how and when Jesus returns, um, uh, big, huge, long theological words, post-millennial, pre-millennial, amillennial, uh, preterism, historicalism, futurism, idealism, and then all of those have subcategories. You can be um, like a pre-trib dispensationalist. There's, there's all kinds of big, huge, giant words, lots of, lots of different categories, lots of options here. And lots of people who love Jesus and love the Bible believe differently about how the whole thing plays out. And that is truly okay. Uh, my friend Dave at Church of the Redeemer, who I'm doing the class with on Women in Leadership tonight, um, he has this mantra that the Presbyterian Church says regularly, that, that he says regularly in groups. I'm in with him. He says this. He says, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, and in everything, charity. I love this. In our faith, there are a few essential things that are very important that we agree on. Uh, for, for Christianity, the second coming of Jesus is one of those things. Um, and there are plenty of non-essential, secondary theological matters where there's freedom or liberty as a Christian or a Jesus follower to land um, in different places. For today's purpose, um, that's how thinking about the second coming plays out a, a, as a secondary theological issue. Um, but in all of these things, charity, and all of these things, humility and kindness, that we would interact with each other when we disagree, uh, no matter how important or secondary it is with humility and with kindness and charity. So uh, that being said, there are lots of American Christians, not so much in other countries, but American Christians who believe and teach a theory of the second coming of Jesus called the rapture, or for you theology nerds, uh, dispensational premillennialism. Um, the rapture is this idea uh, leading up to the return of Christ um, that followers of Jesus will essentially be sucked into the heaven, into heaven by means of a rapture, um, uh, and then that will begin seven, a seven-year period of tribulation on the earth. Um, before which Jesus comes back. Um, this played out in a book series and movie series called Left Behind that portrayed, uh, that may be the picture in your brain, that portrayed planes falling out of the sky because their uh, pilot was raptured or, or sucked into the heavens or uh, cars that were crashing everywhere because their drivers are sucked out of the cars, hence the need for a warning bumper sticker. Uh, there are many Christians who believe that this is the way the world as we know it ends. Um, and I want to be very open that I am not one of those Christians. Um, so my hope today is that with charity and generosity, I can talk about why I think 1 Thessalonians 4 is not really Paul teaching um, about the rapture as much as I think he's teaching something um, uh, a little different, something uh, maybe better news for us here today. So, um, but if you are one of those people, uh, if you are someone who believes um, that, that, that in the rapture, if you are even at the end of my sermon, if you're still like, no, I still think the rapture happens, there is room for you here and non-essentials liberty, right? So there's room for us to believe differently about this. Um, I'm just going to tell you what I think. So first, uh, as we dive in a quick history lesson, um, and then we'll dive into the Bible. So 
quick history lesson. The belief in the rapture is a relatively new, and as I've said, um, predominantly an American evangelical belief. Uh, however, the idea didn't start out in America. It started in Scotland. The idea of the rapture first comes to being in 1830 in Glasgow, Scotland at a prayer meeting where a 15-year-old girl named Margaret MacDonald has what she believes is a prophetic vision from God that all Christians, alive as well as dead, um, would rise into the clouds to meet Jesus in heaven, uh, and, and, and that was what she said. And that moment may not have become more anything more than a moment, except a Bible preacher named John Nelson Darby was in the room at the moment. And and um, most people consider John uh, Nelson Darby the founder of the rupture, the founder of the dispensational uh, movement or thinking. And so he taught this idea. He believed that that um, Margaret McDonald had heard from the Lord, and so he taught this idea all over the place. Um, but it didn't really catch on elsewhere in the world, but in America it caught on and it spread like wildfire, uh, especially among Baptists and non-denominational Christians. So um, one more thing. It is worth noting, um, as we talk about that, that the idea of the rapture, the kind of left-behind theology of the rapture, is only about 150 or 200 years old. Uh, which I think should give us pause. I'm not saying that nothing new can ever be discovered in the world. I am saying, however, that, that it is absolutely worth pausing and investigating something that was not taught anywhere by anyone for the first uh, 1900 or so years of Christianity. So uh, there are two texts that get used to back up this belief a lot. One is today's text that uh, Chad just read us from 1 Thessalonians 4. And then there's an additional passage in Matthew 24 that also gets used. Um, in verse 17 of our text today, we find the idea of getting caught up that gives way for rapture theology. Verse 17 says, Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds uh, to meet the Lord in the air. The term rapture itself, it comes from a Latin term, um, rapimur, it's R-A-P-I-E-M-U-R, which translates caught up. And thus, the idea that Christians, both dead and alive, would be raptured, would be caught up and brought to heaven, while the rest of the world is left behind in tribulation and trouble. This is um, where the idea is born in the Bible in 1 Thessalonians 4. So, uh, if the rapture isn't what Paul is talking about, and if you read it, you may think that's kind of what he's talking about, um, then what is he talking about? If it's not that, then what is it? Um, in order to go there, uh, we need to take a step back and uh, first talk about the wider story of the scriptures. Um, take a step back to look at the wider story and then take a step back in to look at what Paul, um, I think, is specifically saying. So, uh, the New Testament, the Gospels, uh, and all of Paul's and the other pastoral letters, they build on the ancient and biblical idea or, uh, or prophecy that the Creator God who made the world good and perfect in the beginning will remake heaven and earth. A new heaven and a new earth that is free from all that is evil, free from all that is finite, to quote uh, Samwise Ganji, uh, uh, a new heaven and a new earth where all of the sad things will become untrue. And we see this all over the place, all over the scriptures. Uh, Romans 8, uh, Revelation 21, you can find it all over Isaiah. I don't even have time to list them all, all over the place. And uh, the scriptures, they teach that when that happens, Jesus will appear in this new creation. And I, I do think this is uh, partially what Paul is talking about here, the, the coming of Jesus. And, and he's talking about it rich in metaphor with layered meaning. 
uh, as usual. N.T. Wright um, says, um, I love this, in his book Surprised by Hope, he says, all Christian language about the future is a set of signposts pointing to a mist. Essentially, this is a difficult thing to talk about. When it comes to talking about where the world is going, Paul is, um, as so do so many writers of the Bible, he, he is leaning on language, writing descriptively and artistically more than he is prescriptively, uh, I think, of, of what's coming. It's a signpost pointing into a fog. A signpost, here's what I think of, of here's so much that, that is unknown. Paul, I think, does it brilliantly. Uh, so let's get through a few nerdy things in the text. First, we're going to take a deep dive into some of the words that Paul uses. First, in verse 16, Paul, he, uh, I love this one. He uses this really risky word, this wildly political language uh, to describe the return of Jesus. And in verse 16, you see the word coming. Um, and the word for coming is actually parousia. That's the Greek word for coming. Um, and it would have been used for Caesar. Parousia is the word that we get Advent from, where we're headed in a few weeks, where we celebrate the birthday of a king. It was a kingly word. And in this context, uh, Paul is uh, in Thessalonica, parousia would have only been used to describe Caesar. No one else. No one else on the earth. And, and so right here, Paul, in this really super risky way, is telling the Thessalonians that Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. Um, in the second part of that verse, verse 16, uh, scholars note that Paul skillfully does this mixing of imagery with a couple of stories in the Old Testament. He paints this picture of Jesus returning from the clouds uh, with the sound of heaven and a trumpet, similar to the Old Testament story of Moses ascending from Mount Sinai uh, with the sound of heaven. Um, and, and he does something similar at the very end of the verse where he mixes the imagery of from Daniel chapter 7 when the people of God are vindicated and given uh, access to the glory of God forever and ever and ever. And then um, my personal favorite comes in verse 17. Paul, he paints this picture of Jesus and his meeting people in the clouds. And two things are happening here. First, um, the cl that clouds all throughout the scriptures are very often descriptors for the presence of God. Uh, sometimes uh, God's presence comes in a burning bush. There are other ways, but most often clouds are used to describe the presence of God, the indwelling presence of God. And so uh, second, Paul uses the word meat in verse 17. And meat in the original language has a very specific idea of a meeting that takes place outside of a city when a king or an emperor would return. And, and when, when his people, the people who love him, they would meet him outside of a city in order to escort him in in this grand return. The, the, the word is used in two other places in the New Testament, in Matthew 25 and Acts 28, and both of them use a really similar traditional implication of this. So... What does Paul, uh, or what does this mean about what Paul is saying? Why is it important that we look at these words? Um, Paul is notorious for mixing metaphors in order to make a point. It's why I love Paul so much, because he is a master of language, and I love words. So, um, But I also think it's really easy to misinterpret or misunderstand, particularly if we grab verses out of the whole story and try to interpret them on our own or take them literally or prescriptively uh, on our own. For example... In the next chapter, in chapter 5, uh, Paul, he talks about the return, he, he's still talking about the return of Jesus, and he compares the return of Jesus to a thief in the night, a woman in labor, and an empirical takeover. And if you just grab those verses out of the hole, it would feel like super bananas. Uh, 
But in the whole, what is so much easier to see is that um, Paul is not so much saying that Jesus will come, literally come and rob people, and then he will go into labor as an emperor. Um, he's using a metaphor to describe what is so difficult to describe. He's using a metaphor as a signpost pointing to the fog. And it's so similar in our text today. Paul again, in a signpost pointing toward the fog, is not so much saying that the return of Jesus will literally be literally this, as he is saying, the return of Jesus will be something like this. The return of Jesus will be something like Moses coming down off Mount Sinai with the law. It will be something like an emperor or king coming back to his cities, his city with citizens who love him, meeting him outside and escorting him in in this big parade of gratitude and love it it it, it isn't um, an escape that Paul is painting with his words it's a hopeful reuniting many of us if we grew up in America or particularly in the Bible Belt we were taught um, that one day we will die and go to heaven and that's the end of the story but that really isn't what Paul writes about and it isn't the entire story of the scriptures um, the story of the scriptures, it, it doesn't end with people being sucked into the sky, into a disembodied heaven. It is better and more interesting than that. The scriptures, they tell the story of the God who makes all things new. It, it tells of a heaven where God is, and also of a resurrected, of resurrected and restored bodies in a renewed heaven and earth. A new heaven and earth, a, a, a story of heaven and a story of a new one and a new and restored earth. It's not so much um, about an ethereal out there somewhere, but an intentionally renewed place as the ending point where lions lay with lambs, where streams flow in the middle of the desert, where there's no disease or pollution, where justice and wisdom and mercy rule, where all of the sad things become untrue. And so we can look at the best parts of our world as glimpses of the future, uh, the, lo looking at the mountains as glimpses of what's to come, looking at the strong and best parts of our bodies, glimpses of what's coming, a remade heaven and a remade earth. In the beginning of the story, we find that we are created for the shalom of Eden. And the scriptures tell the end of the story, and it looks an awful lot like the beginning with the shalom of a new heaven and a new earth. It's my opinion that this is not uh, a great passage to use to predict and to prescribe exactly how the world is going to end. But instead, um, I think this passage is best used um, in the thickness of grief. I think that's how Paul's writing it. This is a new church in Thessalonica who, that's being persecuted. Some scholars assume that people are dying in the name of Jesus. And Paul is writing this letter to a church that is in the midst of grief and, and under the weight of death. Personally, it's been like a bomb for me this week. It came at the perfect time. Uh, our job is to take what Paul has written in the past and to use it to uh, bear hope in the future. In a week of deep grief for me, these words have been the words of hope. They were so much better than a Nicolas Cage movie about the end of the world. They, they, they are so good in the middle of grief. Uh, verse 13, And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so that you will not grieve as people who have no hope. For since we believe Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. What we have from Paul is an invitation into grieving with hope. 
Uh, when it's used to preach escapism, it, it belittles that grief, I think. But when it's read, I, I think rightly, it offers us a balm, grief with hope, a grief that holds hands with hope because death is not the end of the story. It wasn't for Jesus and it will not be for his people. What we believe about the future, I think it has great impact on how we live here. And I think uh, that is where belief in the rapture can sometimes become kind of a dangerous thing. Because if what you believe is that you get snatched out of the earth for it to blow up or be no more, never to return, then how you treat this world doesn't matter very much. It's escapist. And there's not a lot of weight behind escapism in the scriptures. In fact, if you're looking um, to Christianity um, for escape, it's going to probably be wildly disappointing for you because Jesus doesn't leave very much room uh, for escape, for escaping our joy, our pain, our anger, our sexuality, how we treat our employees or family or whoever comes in our path, how we live in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, he, he doesn't offer a lot of escape for our light uh, or, for, or for the darkness. Uh, following Jesus means learning how to live in the weight of the world with hope, not learning how to escape all of it. Uh, one of my favorite things as a 38-year-old woman is to go somewhere and celebrate something and then look over the room and how messy it is and know that I have no responsibility at all for cleaning it up. It's a rare moment that I get to go to a room like that. Um, maybe this is oversimplified, but to me, that's what rapture theology feels like. And I, I just don't think that's what the scripture teaches. The writers of the Bible, they're constantly teaching that what we do in this world has weight, that what we do in this world has matter. We talk about all the time that we were created for purpose, that Jesus will renew this world and that he has invited us to start that process now. This is not a passage where Paul is prescribing a carelessness with the things of this world because one day we will escape them all. I think this passage is to offer weight to and remind us that Jesus will be coming back and he will bring with him perfect peace and perfect justice and perfect wisdom to the world. And that for those of us who follow Jesus, these things are in glimpsing, the glimpses of these things, they are in our hands now to bring into the world now, to fight for in the world now, the peace and the justice and the wisdom of God now. This is why we talk about joining God in the renewal of all things all the time around here. It's our mission statement because it is good news for now as much as it's good news for what is to come. Because we believe that the kingdom of God is here and the kingdom of God is coming in greater fullness and that the fullness of God always brings shalom and that the fullness of God brings peace and justice and flourishing now and in a new earth, a resurrected and a, and a remade presence. We believe that what we believe about the end of the world matters uh, because being a future person means being part of and bringing about the good stuff, the em being empowered by God's spirit to bring about renewal to the earth now in whatever way that we can. And so here's what I want to do for our Selah today. Uh, we always just take a quiet moment and a quiet pause and I'm just going to read our verses again. And maybe they would be a good, I don't know, maybe you have an, a new way of hearing them or a new way of seeing them. Maybe you um, are part of the, uh, I don't know, almost every, we are living in a time where the weight of death and the weight of grief is so, so heavy when hundreds of thousands of people have died all over our country. Um, it is worth hearing these words from Paul 
as an encouragement. So I'm just going to read them, uh, and then we'll go to the table. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so that you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. We tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him, a, meet him ahead of those who have died, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves, and then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other's each other with these words. Amen.